Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we'll be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in this field. My name's Rosie Alsop. I'm communications manager at We Are Guernsey, the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. Today on the podcast, we'll be discussing our Sustainable Finance Week, which was held in Guernsey at the start of June. And I am delighted to be speaking to Lynn Tomlinson who is Head of Impact and Philanthropy at Casanova Capital. Then all of us at Guernsey Finance are delighted to have you on the podcast today. When we first met you, you uh, you spoke at our Step Asia webinar conference where we discussed the trends and drivers of private capital, particularly family offices, in sustainability. We then spoke again on one of our most listened episodes on the podcast where you gave a fantastic summary of fiduciary duty and the perceived conflict between sustainable investing and fiduciary duty. We were also delighted and grateful to have Casanova Capital sponsoring day two of our Sustainable Finance Week, where the theme of the day was family offices and private wealth financing sustainability. So Lynn, to introduce you to our listeners, um, please, can you tell me how you ended up working in this area of green finance? Can you give us a bit of your backstory? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rosie. And thank you for the lovely introduction. Um, So um, I went straight into financial services from school, actually. And so I've been working in the industry for over 20 years now, which is probably why I feel and look about 100. But um, as a result of that, I've worked in a very broad range of roles across financial services, starting off in customer service through to asset management sales. And I've spent the last part of my career advising high net worth and ultra high net worth clients on their wealth more broadly. But that's included more frequently how to invest in line with their values and how to give money away effectively. So um, as, as an individual, I'm an early adopter, I would say. And so I picked up through you know, research and, and client meetings that there was this real shift in attitude and this trend towards impact investing in 2015. Um, and so I've been leading on impact and philanthropy for Casanova since then. And more recently, I've been involved more broadly in our sustainability capabilities in the business which is a really um, fast growing area. We, we're around £5 billion of assets under management and significantly growing. No, thank you. Thanks for joining us. So a big theme from the day was the role of governance and reporting. Um, Lynn, in your view, what does good sustainable investor reporting and governance look like? So if, if we bring it back to the family offices, um, when we look at families, we find that they're very similar to businesses. And some of them can have as many family members as a small corporate Corporate might have um, employees. And so it's really important that good governance is established and that should cover the purpose of the family's wealth. They should set up a board with relevant experience and responsibilities. Um, communication is like super important where you have you know, many, many different family branches and you must have meetings that are open to everyone for people to be heard and and typically appoint a third party independent chairperson. So that's the sort of good, I would say, structure, if you like. Um, I think the family's vision and values um, should be laid out in a family charter. And these charters can range from the very complex to very simple. But, but But our experience when we've been working with families on these and looking at them is that 
And without exception, they cover off the, those values that the family hold dear, which have guided them over multi-generations. And they, they tend to outline how they expect future generations to um, behave in line with those values and to direct the family's wealth and its interaction with society. And so, therefore, you know, aligning that family's um, assets, whether it's an operational business or more commonly in, in our world, um, investments with those sort of broad family values is a very natural step. So what I find um, is most successful is that the family then takes time to develop their own responsible investment policies in line with that charter. And those can be um, drafted to capture those very broad um, preferences that you might see in different parts of the family. So you could, for example, have a responsible investment policy that aims to do no harm, um, or you may be implementing more sustainable and impact policies to cover those very different needs and beliefs of, of the various parts of the family. But I think ultimately that um, agreeing a sort of you know, overarching sustainable responsible investment framework is a really good practical first step. So in terms of what a good responsible investment policy or sustainable policy looks like, um, in, our, in our experience, it encompasses that purpose and vision of the family for their wealth and their broad principles. It outlines the areas that they wish to avoid, and typically those are the sin stock areas of the market. So, um, and perhaps thinking around your tolerance threshold to those areas. And then they should look at the extent to which they expect um, ESG, so environmental, social and governance factors to be integrated into the investments um, and the stewardship and engagement that they expect from their invest investment managers. And what's quite important, I think, with engagement is to set priorities for your managers to focus on that are really in line with, with the, your, the sort of social and environmental views of the family. Um, in addition, we think you should also think through the positive social and environmental impacts that you wish to have and that are important to family members. So, for example, with the environment, you might set carbon intensity targets. You may want to invest in the energy transition or on the social side, you may be thinking about allocating capital to housing and healthcare and other areas of inclusion. Finally, I think the policy should um, talk about reporting expectations, which we'll come on to in a moment. So, for example, specifying climate and um, social key performance indicators, which are important to the family, and the requirements that you have for your manager on reporting against those and their engagement activities and outcomes. But I think before we go on to reporting, I think one thing we do advocate is selecting the right team. Um, and by that, I mean advisors with the relevant level of expertise and knowledge of sustainability issues. And the reason that that's important is because if we think about multi-generational families, they'll have a wide range of beneficiaries with very different needs, but they'll also um, have many types of legal entities, um, as you'll know very well in Guernsey. So they'll have companies, trusts, foundations, et cetera, often in multiple jurisdictions. So when you're implementing these sustainable investment policies into, into the family, um, not only might you have to employ, uh, employ a new asset manager, but you also might need to alter existing trust deeds and articles, et cetera, to comply with that mandate. And therefore, you really need that sort of broad depth and expertise from the professional service markets and making sure that they're culturally aligned to you as a family, because our experience of family um, offices and, and families is that they appoint advisors for, for the very, very long term, unlike other segments of the market. So, um, that's what I think good governance looks like um, and good sustainable policy looks like. From a reporting perspective, I think good reporting is transparent and clear and not misleading. And impact reporting is a really fascinating area of finance because the more expert you become, the more careful you become with it. And it's, it's 
And that's because there's an, an absolute alphabet soup of standards that managers and companies can align to report against. So um, I think imperfection is the enemy of progress. And it's really important that if you're running a sustainable portfolio or an impact product, that you invest the time and resource in measuring that impact. And, and in fact, it's now a regulatory requirement. So if again, we look at that from the family office perspective, they'll typically have um, multi-manager, multi-asset portfolio. They'll usually have some exposure to private as well as public market investments. And so pulling together reporting across all those asset classes is, is no, um, no mean feat, to be honest. But the way we've approached it, and we have very similar um, issues in our sustainable mandates as we are a multi-asset, multi-manager, um, is that we aligned with um, two global sustainability frameworks, which were the Impact Management Project's ABC framework and the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we've also got our own in-house um, award-winning proprietary tool called SustainX, and that assesses the positive and negative externalities of a company. And those reporting tools alongside tools which measure carbon value at risk, et cetera, combine to give our clients a full picture of their investments beyond financial returns. And I also finally think that um, transparency is really important when it comes to reporting. So disclosing the methodology of your reporting and all of the underlying holdings is a really good uh, sign of, of good um, reporting standards. That's really interesting what you said there about perfection being the enemy of progress. That's something which uh, Claire O'Neill, who's one of the keynote speakers at Sustainable Finance Week, uh, very much um, uh, you know, aligned with what you're saying there. Um, going back to Sustainable Finance Week, we also looked at the role of regulations and public policy. And many of our speakers agreed that regulations and policy are important for institutional investors, but didn't really see them yet affecting decision-making for smaller private investors and family offices. What are your views here, Lynn? I think it's a really interesting question. I don't think explicitly it affects private investors yet. You know, they don't say oh, policy and regulation is driving um, our desire to, to invest more sustainably. But I do think that regulation and policy have a critical role to play in ensuring that we meet social and environmental challenges ahead and that we have market stability. And so I see an important part of the role of policymakers and regulators um, to instill that long-term confidence in sustainability. Um, from a policy perspective, investors are given confidence when governments set long-term policy and importantly outline spending plans to deliver on those policies as that's really what feeds through into the economy. And if governments are constantly flip-flopping on policy, as we saw with you know, Obama to Trump, for example, it affects a company's outlook and their willingness to invest for the long term. But I think where we are now, given that governments have globally committed to net zero on over 70% of global emissions, and we should be confident that this is that these policies will feed through cross parties um, um, for sustainable investing over the next 30 years. So I think it's really important to have that sort of consistent cross party policy focus um, because that gives investors confidence, even if they're not explicitly looking to policymakers. And, and we have seen, you know, for example, the resurgence of optimism under the very short time frame that we've had um, of the Biden presidency, for example, which um, we talked about on our previous podcast. So it really does matter. Um, from a regulatory perspective, again, it's not explicit, um, but we are starting to see intervention by regulators at an unprecedented rate. And I think if you talk to most people who are working in asset management, they'll tell you that they feel like they've been shepherding regulations around for the past 12 months, which is a real challenge. Um, but they are a really important part of a functioning and strong financial system. So, for example, we are seeing in the UK 
the FCA really pushing back on some of the ESG sustainable and impact product launches. And just this week on the 19th of July, they sent a letter calling for improved clarity and reporting of fund labelling. And again, in the EU, we've seen regulators step in and have removed um, over £2 trillion of fund assets from the ESG universe because of of labelling concerns. And I think that's a really important step for them to take because I think one risk to the sustainable investment movement is that loss of confidence in financial institutions and the marketing of various sustainable products. So I see the regulatory point as important heading off potential mis-selling issues, which would be really damaging for consumer confidence in the industry. And that could impede all the great work that that we all know is um, being done across, across markets. Yeah, that's a a very interesting point that you make there. So our panels discussed how they saw that the biggest driver for sustainable investing for family offices was a desire for impact with the investments. Is that what you're seeing? I think it sort of takes us back to to what we said, you know, what said earlier, um, that, you know, what is that purpose of a family's wealth? And more and more are considering their role, particularly in light of the environmental and biodiversity crisis, but also the social inequalities, which have been um, highlighted by the pandemic. So I saw a terrible statistic this week that 114 million people have been pushed into poverty by COVID, according to the UN Department of Economic Affairs. And that is really filtering through and it's a really live topic for families and, and other investors. However, as I mentioned earlier, when we're talking about families and family offices, we're actually talking about potentially you know, many tens or hundreds of individuals that make up that whole. So um, you know, capturing their views via that governance structure is really important and they will be wide ranging. But some families are investing for impact definitely with certain assets, um, but others are driven by that need to generate sustainable long-term financial performance to protect the wealth of future generations. So I'd say it's, it's broadly both. Um, for sustainable investing, it's much more focused on um, the, the awareness that um, climate risk poses a potential risk to to um, long-term returns. And with impact, it's much more focused on the impact. So it depends really on which family um, you're talking to. Um, and it tends to be reflected in certain parts of their assets, in my experience. Okay. So how can investors tell which opportunities will make the biggest difference and, and what should they be looking out for? which um, sectors represent opportunity um, and how can looking at this thematically help? Yeah, so if you're um, sort of trying to um, deal with the the massive influx of of deal flow and investments at the moment, it's actually really challenging whether you're sort of in in Casanova or you're working in in a family office. There's so much product out there across all asset classes and that's both across private and public markets. Um, it's unprecedented, I would say. We've never seen anything like it. Um, but also what's really interesting is that the money's actually following as well. Um, but for me, I would say it's about setting out that broad environmental and social roadmap. Um, what areas do you really want to explicitly target? What impact goals do you have? And which of those are investable at market rates of return? And that's the way we look at it. So um, we we have organised ourselves around five impact themes, which are aligned to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and they're focused on, you know, people. So, for example, um, inclusion. We would be looking at social housing, financial and digital inclusion, or providing SME and and charity and social enterprise financing. Um, investing across health and well-being, which would cover areas such as social bonds and the provision of healthcare. 
And then on the planet side of things, there's there's lots of options, but we we we're sort of focused very much on responsible consumption, and because we think the circular economy has a massive role to play in how we think about biodiversity protection, but also reducing the negative impacts that companies have on the environment and we have on the environment, we think there's a lot of opportunity there. In climate change, there's of the obvious areas such as the energy transition and renewables, but also the newer technologies that are needed to decarbonize these sort of more difficult areas of the economy, for example, steel and cement production. And then finally, we are looking at sustainable infrastructure, which is really important for net zero just due to the level of emissions from that area, but also um, the sort of um, maps population growth. So having that thematic approach really helps us focus on those areas um, where we think we can have the most impact at scale. Um, but I would say overridingly that we don't, we can't so solve the social issues that we have without tackling climate change. So that's a massive focus for us and it makes up a large part of our investable universe and also a, a very large part of our engagement efforts. We had uh, a really interesting discussion with Renee Hall, who's head of philanthropy at Seahaw and Co, about the changes and trends around philanthropy and sustainable investing. Um, he saw that the trend is now towards impact investing and building in impact across the whole portfolio, rather than putting a small portion of capital towards philanthropy. And that families can be intentional with their impact investing. Now, you've worked in both philanthropy and impact investing. So what are your views on the relationship between those two? So I'm really fortunate to be a trustee alongside Rennie for um, philanthropy impact. So I know how much innovation there is within the Hoare family and, and the, the, the sort of tenet of that, the Golden Bottle Trust and how it manages its um, endowment and also their market building work with the Snowball LLP, which I'm sure they'll list at some point in the future. Um, so I'm seeing more and more clients taking that total impact approach um, across all of their philanthropic assets. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're reducing their grant making, but it does mean that they are looking at other tools they have at their disposal, as the whole family have done. So if you think about it logically, it really doesn't make sense to be giving away four or five percent of your charitable foundation each year to put a sticking plaster on what you know potentially some of the 95 percent is causing. So I think avoiding harm at a minimum is, is where most um, of our families will start with their charitable assets. Um, but what's really interesting to see is that um, innovation, um, it spills out into the other assets in my experience. So it's really quite typical for a family to dip their toe in the water with sustainable and impact investing within their foundation and see what happens. I don't want to go down a fiduciary duty rabbit hole because we did that last time. But sometimes it's easier once the money's been gifted into a foundation to be more flexible and innovative with how you with how you allocate that. So um, it also gives them that opportunity to get over the typical myths of sustainable investing, such as low returns, high risk and volatility. So when they start to see that they aren't, that isn't true in their charitable assets, they're, they're much more comfortable moving that into the, the main portfolio. Um, I think what's really interesting is that we're starting to see some real innovation in the philanthropy space with, with impact investing. So, for example, the impact investing arm of the George Soros Foundation has just led a philanthropic consortium to buy a biotech firm for 30 million and take it from a for-profit to a social enterprise. And the reason that they've done that is because they want to deal with the sort of inequity we have in healthcare around pricing in developing markets, which is something that's really, really relevant today. So I personally think 
that philanthropy and impact investing are absolute perfect partners, particularly for families who have the ability and are really excited about innovation like like um, Hoare and Co. And I think we need these families showing the way for others because it makes complete sense to me that if you are philanthropically minded, that you use every tool at your disposal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Now, Oliver Gregson of JP Morgan Private Bank in his keynote identified five drivers creating change in sustainable investing. So they were our changing world, investor preferences, public policy, risk and return, and greater availability of sustainable projects in which to invest. So we've discussed many of these themes already. Are there any drivers that you feel are missing there? And what do you think is the most important for private investing? So I think Oliver did a really great job of summarising those drivers. I don't have anything specific to add per se to what he said, but the one thing I would say is that we are now having lived experiences um, of climate change. It's not something that's happening in other parts of the world far away. We had that terrible flooding in Germany last week. I just saw that they've had the worst rain in China for a thousand years. People have relatives or live in California and America where they're having all those wildfires. So, I mean, you sadly sometimes need these local in my backyard experiences to motivate governments and people to act. And I think we're seeing that now. I think what wasn't discussed, but which really interests me, is how the... um, the financial services industry and asset manager response to these drivers plays out and how innovative they will become because much of the focus and resource is currently on ESG products and listed products, particularly repositioning existing funds, which is a hugely important part of the picture. But I think if we want to solve for some of the more nuanced, difficult challenges we face, um, we will need to see them take some of that you know, amazing brain power and resource they have and spend time in, in the niche parts of the impact investment market. And by that, what I really mean are areas um, that potentially are subscale, but have the potential to scale. So, for example, the social investment market in the UK, outcomes financing, contracts, impact venture and private equity. Because my experience is that despite the focus from asset managers and investors, on this area is still very challenging for um, for these managers to raise capital in this current environment. But I think what's really encouraging is that we're starting to see pockets of innovation. Um, so, for example, um, M&G launched their Catalyst Fund, which is a private market fund and is committed to, to deploying £1 billion of capital per annum over five years um, to private markets globally. Um, we did some work ourselves, Casanova, by helping to launch the Schroeder Big Society Capital Social Impact Investment Trust, which IPO'd in December last year. And that's providing capital to these very disadvantaged groups in the UK by financing charities and social enterprises to, to deliver services. And again, with Schroeder's and Blue Orchard, they launched the COVID Relief Fund. And that fund is targeting SME finance in emerging markets. But we do need to see more of this um, innovation coming out of mainstream asset managers to really make a difference in some of these very underserved parts of of the market around the world. Um, Interestingly, I do think that there's two areas that might help with that, which aren't connected to sustainability, but will sort of help push us along. The first is this um, de-equitization of markets, and and the second is the focus on personalization and customization. Um, So de-equitization because it's going to force wealth managers into private markets. And once they're comfortable with that, I can see them moving into sustainable and impact private markets more easily. Because if you take an impact fund to a manager who's never invested in private markets, it's impossible as they just don't have the internal governance or resource to deal with that. But 
if they're already doing this as part of their core asset allocation and because it's important for long-term returns for all of their clients, then it's going to become a lot easier. And I think with personalization and mass, this mass customization, we're moving away from this one-size-fits-all models and funds and, and impact is a really important driver of that personalization piece. So I expect that that will help over time. And again, it's particularly relevant to the family office space because um, these, these clients are the ones that have room for coping with some of the illiquidity and the long-term nature of these investments and the innovation, and they're perfectly placed to seed some of, some of this innovation. So I think it's a, that would be my, you know, my thoughts really is, is how our industry responds to these drivers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we are at our final question. Um, so we've had a lot of discussion around the intergenerational transfer of wealth driving sustainable investment millennials caring about the environment more than boomers, uh, if, if you'll forgive the generalisation. However, many of our panellists at Sustainable Finance Week disagreed with this narrative, saying that the older generation are also seeing the merits of sustainable investing. What are you seeing with your older and younger clients? Yeah, so I mean, I absolutely agree with that. that sustainable investing isn't just for the young. It resonates with so many people and it's got nothing to do with age or wealth or, or demographic. Um I mean, of course, it should resonate with the young and the surveys do back this up. But but in just thinking back to family wealth, it isn't the young that have control of the assets, particularly. Um, so that's why we should really go back to, to where we were at the beginning around the importance of family governance and capturing all, all the members' views and making sure that we reflect them accordingly within their investment policies. Because one of the big, um, you know, potential damages to family wealth is not engaging the next generation. And this is a really important part um, of doing that. So I think it's, it's very broad and wide in our client base. It's, it's across all wealth segments, across all regions and, and across all age groups, which is fantastic to see really. Yeah, I think what you're saying at the start about the need for a family charter and making sure that everybody sort of, you know, wherever they sit in the family is, is aligned with the um, with the strategy is so important. Um, that's all we have time for today. I am incredibly grateful, Lynn. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us. Uh, I think you've made some amazing points there. I was very taken with what you said about innovation and impact, um, and it will be really interesting to see what happens in the future. Uh, and I'd also like to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast, and you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at GSY Green Finance and at We Are Guernsey. We also have links to Lynn and Casano's social media in our show notes. So make sure you check those out to hear more from them. You can also watch our Sustainable Finance Week on Demand. It's on our website presented in association with the United Nations Financial Centres for Sustainability. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. 